Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 29 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my co-host and partner in trying to make the world a better place through business, Raj Shasodia. Hi, Raj. Hi, Timothy. Good to see you again. Good to see you. And we have a very interesting guest today. Um, Some of you may have heard of an iconic company, one of the first what we would call unconscious conscious capitalists because they were behaving like conscious capitalists before we even had the phrase. Anita Roderick founded uh, The Body Shop and the CEO who's been brought in to revive that brand and bring it back to a very bright future is David Boynton, our guest today, the chief executive of The Body Shop. He brings over 30 years of experience in the retail sector that goes everywhere from men's fashion to other natural brands like L'Occitane and um, an origin in the grocery business, which we'll get to as we go into this, and some time in Asia as well. So a very well-rounded character in the retail sector. Here he is, David. Hello. Hey, Timothy. Hey, Raj. Real pleasure to, to be with you. Thanks for inviting me today. Well, great to have you with us. And maybe begin with how you would paint the picture of the body shop when you came into it in 2017, 2018. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, and, you know, many, many thanks for actually remembering what the body shop really is because, uh, you know, most times I I speak to folks about the body shop and they think it's the place that you take your Chevy after a fender bender. So, uh, so nice that you remember that we were originally an unconscious conscious capitalist. So, uh, (laughs) That, that's certainly where it all began. Yeah, the, the company had been owned by one of the big groups for about 10 years. Um, there was a change of ownership that happened in 2017. Um, and I came on board uh, in the December of that year, a couple of months after the, the transition in ownership had taken place. And uh, it, was, it was a very interesting experience. I mean, I, you know, it was, it was a company that was devoid of confidence, um, it was a company that I think is one of very, very few that have ever been sold by L'Oreal. I mean, L'Oreal is an acquirer of companies. It's not a seller of companies. So the confidence of the organization took a bit of a dent as a consequence of that. And, and you know, looking at all the data points as I came on board, we, we were a company that was underperforming its sector peers, bottom quartile in every single measure you could, you could imagine, frankly. So... Um, I was brought in with a very simple brief. Uh, David, we'd like you to double EBITDA in five years. And how you do that is going to be up to you, but, that, but that's the goal and that's how we're going to measure success. And, and you know, clearly the way that we were going to work was in the context of the fact that our new owners was Natura, you know, one of the most respected uh, B Corps in the world, um, the Brazilian behemoth, in the in the cosmetics industry and uh you know they had a certain way of operating which was what made the challenge so so attractive to me but the goal was very simple double ebitda in in five years 
and stop being in the bottom quartile for everything. Yeah, yeah. And, and part of that, I mean, part of what I think appealed was obviously this was an iconic brand that at one point had stood for something very important, albeit maybe not the best of run businesses. So I think it's fascinating that what, in essence, what you were brought in to do was to rejuvenate the sense of purpose and connect back into that core energy that was there at the beginning and, and revamp the business model and get the business to perform well as a business. And I think that's, that's a really important point. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, it wasn't articulated like that, Timothy. I mean, it, it really was as specific as here's a financial goal that, that we need you to go and achieve. How are you going to get there is up to you. And I think, you know, as, as you've just touched on, um, right from the beginning, you know, I, I you know, I'd, I'd grown up with Anita Roddick and, and Gordon and, and the way they transformed our industry. Um, you know, I remembered it as a very special business. I'd seen its decline over a number of years, but, but clearly there was something really important about this company. You know, it was, it was setting a completely new social and environmental agenda back in the late seventies and eighties, along with companies like Patagonia and Ben and Jerry's. And it, it was just fascinating to me to see how it had lost its way and lost its sense of who it really was. So the purpose journey was something that I initiated when I first came on board and it was a way of sort of saying, we're not going to fix all the woes of this company by doing what the industry does. We're going to, we're going to fix this company by doing what we were meant to do. So what is that? And that, that's really how the journey began. I love that. I mean, fighting for a fairer and more beautiful world. That's a pretty inspiring purpose, isn't it? <laughs> and, and David, was that the purpose that uh, existed already? Or was that something that was articulated under your leadership, this this uh, version of it, yeah, no, that version that, that that Timothy's just mentioned, we we found it. You know, we we went mining in the archives, and we spoke to lots of people inside and outside the company. I mean, there were more than a hundred people involved in the company, and we were talking to people like Gordon Ruddock and uh, and Anita's daughters. You know, informally, just to get a sense of you know what what, what the business was really doing or what it was like when it was creating magic, and uh, and and. It took about six months, and there is a 75-page deck behind this to, to reassure you guys. But, but the, sort of the, the memorable line was to fight for a fair and more beautiful world. Mm. But we, we, we found that, and it just resonated with everybody that we spoke to in the business, and, uh, and, it, and it set out our agenda for change. And you know, all the decisions that we made as a consequence, um, all the decisions that we've made subsequently to achieve that goal of doubling EBITDA, um, have been in the context of, of that purpose statement and the work behind it. Mm. It kind of reminds me of the uh, platonic ideals, right? The good, the true, and the beautiful. And, uh, you know, those are, those are objectives that we pursue without having to justify them on any, any other basis, right? The pursuit of the good, the true, and the beautiful. And I think this company has always stood for that. This idea in the beauty business of how do you interpret beauty you know what is that right and it can be at a very surface level right and all the criticism that companies like uh, even unilever have gotten about the fairness creams in india for example fair and lovely and all of those kinds of things yeah which is promoting a, a standard of beauty that is uh, that goes against uh, the sensibilities of so many people right versus defining beautiful in a, in a broader way Right. So how do you actualize that? How do you, is it inner beauty? Is it uh, the beauty of every human soul? 
No, I think I think it's it's really perceptive of you to have picked up on that, Raj. I mean that you know that that was that was what we were really implying there. You know, we wanted a sense of connection with the, the beauty industry. You know, a reminder of of where we play. Um, but you know, we we have fundamental beliefs like everyone is beautiful as they are. You know, we're 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 passionate advocates of self love, and and we really saw the word beauty in its you know beautiful in its broader sense. It was the beauty of the planet and the acknowledgement of that. It was the beauty of relationships. It was inner beauty. It was the broadest possible sense. And the idea was really with that phrase that there was enough ambiguity and enough play in it that we could we could really make it connect with all the things that we cared about. You know, so it was a distillation of that seventy-five pages of uh, of substance behind it, but in a way that could then be a north star for the organization. Yeah, and you've relaunched the brand as well, right? I mean, and in a sense, you have a big campaign that's just kicking off, the self-love campaign. I mean, completely connected to that. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, we, um, I mean, it's been a long journey, right? So, you know, I, I joined, as I said, in December 2017. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a number of things that you can do relatively quickly and other things that take time. You know, rejuvenation of the brand clearly is is you know, fundamental to any success that we're going to have. I think we think we've made a lot of progress along the way, but we're still learning to flex our activist muscles. You know, Anita Ruddick was famously mm. an activist. And so what does activism look like uh, for an in for a business like ours in our industry in, in 2021, right? You mm. know, that, that, that's a, a question that's exercised us a lot over the last couple of years. And, and we think we think there's there's an incredible power. We're, we're very interested in the idea of confidence, right? And I, if we get chance later on, we can talk about the lack of confidence in the wider organization and the implications of that for for some of the things that we've done. But um, but but you know we, we believe that you know that there's an enormous power in the human spirit, and it needs to be liberated. And people need to have the confidence to be able to go out and help shape the world in a better way. So our sense is that, that, you know, confidence comes from appreciating yourself, from loving yourself, frankly. And, uh, and, and, and we, want to, we want to support the next generation of activists by creating uh, uh, an environment of self-love where, where people have the confidence to say, actually, I'm good enough. I can go and make change happen. Um, and, 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 and that's what this new campaign's about. It's beautiful. No pun intended. The, um, actually, pun intended completely. Um, so let's play with that idea of confidence, David. Let's go there a little bit more in terms of, you mentioned at the very beginning that the organization had lost its confidence. And you now come back with a, with a, a brand statement about confidence and that part of beauty. What's been the journey around building the confidence back into the building, back into the building, back into the business? Yeah, you know, if you imagine, let, let's rewind the clock back to December. You know, it's a company that had been rejected by the world's biggest beauty company. That, that's a blow. Mm. You know, it was a company that um, had lost its mother, effectively. You know, Anita Roddick tragically died in 2007, a year after the change in ownership. And, um, and, and we effectively became an orphan with a stepfather. And mm. the stepfather tried to kind of create the conditions for the, the, the stepchild to thrive but there was never really a meeting of minds. So you had this endless cycle of the stepchild trying to do things to please the stepfather and never quite succeeding, always feeling like a failure. And it culminated in, in the separation. So, you know, coming into the business, 
the, the, the big challenge really was about how do we give this, this company and these, this fantastic group of people their mojo back. And, um, you know, purpose was, a, was an important part of that. It's like, we're better than this, guys. We can achieve more. What were we born to do? And, uh, and, and the, purpose, the purpose statement and, and the, the work around that set us off on a, on a different path. You know, I think the thing that's been fascinating for me as a leader, you know, if, if, if I reflect on things that worked well and, and, and missteps, and I'm a, you know, I'm a big fan of this idea of purpose. I know there's accusations of purpose wash these days, and there's, mm. you know, there's, there's a movement against it in some areas of marketing. And I don't see it as a brand purpose. I see it as being much more fundamental than that. But, um, but you know, they're, they're, this just had the power to give us a clear sense of where we were headed that we just didn't have before. And, you know, we got off to a great start. You know, people really seemed to appreciate it. But there was a, there was a fascinating period in that first year. And, Timothy, you, 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 you thankfully helped me as, uh, as my partner in, uh, in, in trying to solve some of this stuff. Quite quickly, we, we realized that we weren't moving as fast as we thought we were, you know, and it's like, what's not to love about this agenda that we've created? And, um, and, and we discovered very quickly that, that, you know, one of the things connected with this lack of confidence was people felt psychologically unsafe. You know, nobody could speak up. You know, you could build a career in the previous ownership by keeping your head down and not really doing anything. And suddenly we were saying to people, we're in this beautiful new world where you can do whatever you want and nobody wanted. It was almost like a prisoner in a prisoner's cell when the doors open. It's like, I don't want to come out because I'm, I know it in here. I'm quite comfortable. So, uh, so it's, it's been a really interesting journey over the last couple of years to help people to realize, to create some conditions of self-love that you guys are good enough and you can do amazing work and we can make this incredible thing that we're trying to achieve happen. But, um, but, but I think that's probably the biggest thing I underestimated as a leader in the beginning, that I thought mm. if you open the cell door, people would run out, and it turned out that wasn't the case. Mm. Mm. So, uh, David, I'm trying to put myself into your shoes. Uh, so you get this company, uh, and the new owners have said nothing about the purpose and the legacy and the history, and all they're saying is double the EBITDA. Is, that, is there some kind of a mismatch there? Does it feel like... Uh, I thought Natura was about its own higher purpose in this world. How come they're only setting a financial goal here? Aren't they saying something more than that, something deeper than that? And then how does that trickle down uh, to the people who report to you? Uh, do you uh, assess them purely on financial metrics? Uh, or are you also including some of these other dimensions that, uh, that uh, the company is, uh, stands for and, and believes in? Yeah, you know, great, great questions again, Raj. And, and I mean, Natura is Natura. You know, it's just a beautiful company and three remarkable founders have just done an extraordinary job of creating a true triple bottom line business, right? You know, they're, they're, they're one of the, the poster childs, poster children of that. And, um, you know, although it was never explicitly articulated, you know, the, 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 the measure of success of transformation was doubly bit dark, but there was a sort of, unspoken understanding that we would do it the right way you know and i think in terms of them deciding to ask me to come on board and the kind of conversations that we had prior to joining you know they weren't going to tell me how to do it you know i was going to find my own way 
but there was an, always an understanding that it was in a very specific context. It was in a triple bottom line context. So, mm, okay. so, so it wasn't a goal for me from mm. the get go, but, mm. but we were always going to do it that way. Mm. And, and it's been triple bottom line from the get go, you know, in terms of the scorecard of how we measure success, uh, how we measure the performance of the team. Um, you know, we have financial measures, but they're balanced by, you know, important, um, you know, progress and sustainability and also uh, social impact. You know, the, the focus over the first couple of years on social impacts largely been around our employees, the people who work in the body shop and how we take care of them and their level of engagement and satisfaction of being part of this journey. But increasingly, as we go forward, we see, as that we see there being an opportunity to, you know, have a, have a, a bigger impact on the world outside, um, outside the body shop. Well, I think a couple of things, David, that you're, you're not bringing up is that you became a certified B Corp and that was no mean feat and you're probably going to get recertified soon, we all hope. Um, and then beyond that, I mean, there's lots of other things like the open hiring. Um, Raj, uh, Greystone mm -hmm. Bakery has spoken at our conference a few times and we made the connection for the body shop there. And now you guys are very actively pursuing open hiring as a part of what you're doing. So I, I think there's a lot there that, uh, that David's understating on in terms of some of the really good things. Now, this week is a great week to have you here, David, because something over in France just happened this week, right? For those of you that aren't following it, but the, uh, the CEO and chairman of uh, Danone, one of the other poster children, at, other than Unilever at a major size, uh, consumer product focused company, um, has been forced to step down. And the raging debate has been, is it because the activist investors are against his um, approach, which is sort of a conscious capitalist kind of B Corp approach, or was it something else? And they're claiming it was the something else. They're claiming it was the business wasn't performing, that if you compared it to Unilever and you compared it to Nestle's, it was seriously underperforming. Um, and therefore, the reason that he was pushed to the side wasn't because he was a proponent and a big champion of these things, but because he didn't get the business side of it right. And David, one of the things I love about working with you is you get the business side right. You have deep retail experience and you've done a, a, a remarkable job of assembling a team to go and do that. So talk a little bit about reviving the business itself let alone the fact that you were pulling out of L'Oreal. So all of the systems, all of the supply chain, the IT systems, the financial systems, all had to be reset. But on top of that, you were trying to reinvigorate a business that would got maybe a little bit loose in terms of how it operated. Yeah, I mean, very interesting. And of course, yeah, we, we saw what happened in Danone and Emmanuel clearly is, you know, one of the, the poster children, uh, you know, along, along with Paul and, and, you know, we, we respect the work that those guys have done very much uh, as leaders of those big companies. And it was, you know, frankly, it was a surprise. Um, you know, we, we, we've always been clear, it's triple bottom line, right? You know, pro profit is not optional, it's, it's part of it. And it's, it's the right to play. You know, I mean, I, I've been very clear with the team from the beginning that we aren't an NGO. So we have this very inspiring purpose that guides every decision that we make in the business. Um, but, but making money is not optional. That's, that's what it's a business. That's what we're going to do. And making money and being successful sets us up as an exemplar, 
you know, it shows others that you can take this approach of triple bottom line and, you know, outperform and not be bottom quartile anymore, be top quartile in all the traditional metrics of performance. Because we believe that in today's world, you know, people will shop with businesses that care about the things that they care about. And we care passionately about, about uh, the environment and societal impact. And, and we believe that that will, that will, you know, that, that will play out in a positive way for us in the long run. But in the meantime, we've got to pay the bills. We've got to be attractive to consumers. We've got to have great products. We've got to deliver amazing service experiences. It, it, it's not optional. Yeah, uh, you know, the way I phrase it is that it is socially irresponsible not to be profitable, right? Because profit is a social good. I mean, free societies don't function without corporate profit. So, but of course, it matters how you make the money. And that's where the other two pillars, of course, uh, of course, come in. Um, I think a large part of this story is, is shifting uh, consumer or customer awareness and behavior over time, right? So you don't just speak to a niche, but you actually align with people who want to uh, uh, show up with their values in the marketplace, but don't really know how. It's not that evident to them. And there's a company that uh, I'm on the board of now, it's called eCountable. And they're trying to make it easy. You know, so they look at all of your purchases and your list of priorities as to what you care about in terms of uh, social issues, environmental issues. And then they'll tell you how you know, how your uh, buying patterns actually match up with that. And if they don't, they'll also nudge you towards brands that are a better fit, you know. So I think mechanisms like that will evolve ultimately to, so that we are better able to reward virtuous behavior of, of the kind that, you know, we see from co uh, companies like The Body Shop, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's an important push. Yeah, I think, I think, I think very interesting. And um, yeah, you know, you, you, otherwise... Raj, you're putting yourself out there and say, look, we, we, you know, you find mechanisms to say we're doing this good stuff, come and join us. Um, you know, the, the nature of our business model, you know, as, as Timothy mentioned at the beginning of the conversation is we're direct to consumer. You know, we're not, we're not a classic CPG company where you spend a ton of money on media, right? You know, the, the, the money that those folks spend on media, we spend on running shops. So there, there's something about as, as, as a customer is walking down the street, what makes them turn left into your store rather than keep walking by? And how do you, how do you get them to understand everything that you represent? You can stick a B Corp sticker in the window, but mm. outside of the U S people generally don't really understand what that is. So, so it's, I think it's, you know, going back, going back to that, the, the, the point that Timothy mentioned earlier around B Corp embarking on that, um, you know, that, that challenge so early in our transformation journey with everything else that we had to do. You know, you could argue at some level that it looked like a luxury. You know, why, why would we do that? Because it, it's really hard work. I mean, it, it was a year of digging really deep to find the data to prove the case and tied up a lot of people. But we just felt it was incredibly important for two reasons. One was to establish this benchmark about where we were. And we just thought that was the most rigorous audit that was out there to really understand, are, are we as good as we think we are? And then secondly, which, which connects a little bit to the point that, that you were just making, it was to put us back in the club, you know, back with those folks like Patagonia and Ben and & Jerry's that Anita was so close to 20 years ago plus um, and start to work together and say, we're creating a movement here. You know, how do we reach consumers? How, how do we help them to understand good business versus less good business? Um, 
you know, and that and that that was an important step for us because it's it it's not completely clear how you connect to customers and tell them you're amongst the good guys because there's so much greenwash, so many cl- people claiming regenerative and goodness knows what. You know, uh, how, how do you help the consumer to cut through that? It's, it's a real challenge. Well, I think it's also interesting because you emphasize the stores, but um, but we're living in an omni-channel world. I mean, people are buying, and you people in particular are omni-channel, right? I mean, you don't only have the stores, you have the e-commerce, you have some direct uh, at-home shopping that you, uh, you've, you've started. You also have some franchise models, and you also have some wholesale business. Um, and so tell us a little bit about, you know, what does that mean in a retail environment? You're a, you're a born in the bread retailer to step into this omni-channel challenge and establish the brand in this new way that you just mentioned. Sure. I mean, you know, I, I think if you're a successful retailer, I mean, I've been doing it with some, with some degree of success for, I mean, 30 plus years now, probably getting on for 35 years you know, there's, there's things that you, you, you're really passionate about. I mean, you, you, you're invariably to be successful. You've got to be passionate about people. You've got to be passionate about your customers and the folks who work for you. And you've got to be passionate about selling stuff. Right. And I think, you know, the world's just moved on. And I think, I think retail definitely has a place. We believe in shops, the power of shops. We think mediocre shops and dull experiences don't deserve to exist. And they're disappearing at a, at a, a pretty scary rate right now, but but highly experiential retail, I'm confident. I mean, we're social creatures, right? I'm confident it's going to continue and thrive, you know, as we get through the the worst of what we're facing right now. But e-commerce has been part of our lives since the mid-noughties. We've been investing heavily in it. We understand the digital channels well, um, we think, and um, and we just have to to learn how to grow that faster. And you know, when and and direct selling. It's a new dimension for us. Um, Anita Ruddick started it, but it was always very small. And our previous owners didn't really like the channel, so never invested in it. But we have invested in it. Our parent company is a direct seller. And, uh, and, and it's just given another string to our bow. You know, there are, there are tens of thousands of consultants out there online with social accounts talking about the Body Shop story, sharing how great our products are, sharing the difference that we're making in the world. And... We see it as a, a, you know, in addition to being a great commercial channel, it's a really powerful communication channel as well. So we think it's incredibly interesting to have this sort of complementarity of these of these three different channels that just allow us to meet. You know, I sound I know this sounds a bit sort of Silicon Valley kind of buzz phrase, but you know, meeting the customer wherever she wants to meet us. You know, mm. so um, so so we're finding we're finding it very interesting, and it, it turns out that a. Uh, you can teach an old dog new tricks, Timothy. So, uh, <laughs> talking to me, <laughs> talking about myself, but just in uh, case you doubted that, as a, as a dyed-in-the-wool retailer. So, yeah, no, I love that. I also think that uh, what was really interesting to me was that one of your first moves when we started talking about leadership development was, and I, I thought it was interesting because I think there were some people who said, "Well, we got to." you know, let's get the top echelon leaders all trained and developed. And, and you said, no, actually, let's go to the store managers. <laughs> and I loved that. You sort of said, okay, let's start with the store managers and we're going to train them on how to be good leaders. Tell us a little bit about that and, and what your logic was then and, and why you went in that direction. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, m many, many dimensions. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm a passionate believer that, that retail isn't, you know, lowest common denominator jobs. You know, re retail is an industry that can provide, you know, rich, rewarding careers for people. And, uh, you know, I, I became a store manager. I started off in grocery, as you mentioned at the beginning. I didn't have a clue. I came out of university. I'd done a science degree. I had no clue what I wanted to do with my life. I, I worked in uh, manufacturing industry for a couple of years, hated it. It wasn't me. And I just fell into retail and I found the place I was meant to be. And I was in organizations, but meant I was managing a business turning, turning over 20 million pounds a year with 200 staff at the age of 26, you know, it's, mm. it's pretty cool when you can get into that kind of situation. And there were people in those early stages of my career who connected with me and show, you know, opened a door and helped me to understand how this could be a good, a good fit for me. And I think the role of the store manager is a powerful one. You know, you, you, you're connecting with young people making their first steps into, into the workplace mm. And, and it's, 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 it's magic, you know, it can be magic. So I feel we have a real responsibility to invest in our store managers, our frontline, the people who are developing the leaders of the future and are also our ambassadors with, with, um, with the customer. So that, that's where we decided to, to bravely to, to start and to invest in them and show that we cared and valued what it was that they did. And, um, you know, there's been a number of things that we, we focused on on the front line. We, we, we started an initiative to pay the real living wage in the UK rather than just the government's living wage, which is 15, 20% lower. And at the time, my team said to me, but we can't afford to do this yet, David. You know, we need to be more successful. Remember the EBITDA um, target. Don't forget the EBITDA target. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and I said, look, you know, and this is another important point about purpose, you know, and, and when purpose isn't just purpose wash and nonsense, but it's but it, it becomes something much more substantive. I said the entire organization has heard us stand up and say that we're fighting for a fair and more beautiful world and we're prepared to pay an unfair wage to the folks in our stores. I, I, I can't live with that. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I'm just not living our organizational purpose or leading this organization the right way if I allow that to happen. And so we you know, we made the change and we made, we made the commitment. So, um, you know, it's, it, I think it's a good example of um, your, your purpose forces you to make choices. Everyone's watching. Everyone's checking. Do you really believe it? Do you mean it when you say it? And, um, and, 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 and that's, you know, the good and the bad of going down that path when you decide to make that journey. Um, you're on the hook. Mm. Because if you go on to make any of the changes that you're trying to drive through in the business – you know, and you want people to follow you. They're, they're testing all of the time. Does mm. he really mean this? Are they really doing it? And finding the little bits of evidence to show they didn't really commit to that. So the thing that's beautiful about that is it enables you to create a really transparent, authentic dialogue with the organization because you can't do everything at once. There will be steps along the way and you'll have to live with things that aren't completely perfect. But you can have a conversation with the organization that, that still says we're going there and here's the evidence that we're going there, but it takes time. And, um, but, it's, but it's a big responsibility. You know, they, they, they are watching you and, uh, and, I, and I think that's a great thing, but, it's, but you need to be very mindful of that if you are prepared to go take your organization on this journey to be truly purpose-led.
Yeah, I think it's one of the things that makes a purpose matter is that it's credible and relevant inside the business. And the only way it's going to be credible and relevant is if you live it and do the things that you say and explain to people that there's a staging to it and it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. So, David, uh, it's interesting when you see a company that is sort of for women and founded by a woman and, right, I mean, even one of your values is the empowerment of women and girls that as a man leading in that environment, can you talk a little bit about that dynamic? Of course, you know, I believe that, you know, all humans embody both, both those energies, masculine and feminine. We need those. But beyond that, are there some other subtleties in terms of leading in that kind of a, a company? Yeah, you know, I, I, I've, I've got to be honest, Raj, I, I felt a degree of self-consciousness in the beginning, you know, I, I mean, I'm, you know, I, irrespective of who followed Anita, but, um, but between Anita and me, I felt I was stepping into Anita's shoes, you know, and uh, and all the things that you said about um, a, a business that's all about the empowerment of women and girls, and um, yeah, you know, we, I, I agonized a lot over that, frankly, you know, to the extent of saying I don't want to be the public face of the company. I'm, I'm going to promote the other talented women I have in my immediate team to go and speak about our business because I'm too old. I'm too white. I've got too big a beard, you know, I'm too male. So, um, and I think it, it took me a little while to, for, for me to find my own path through that. And, and, you know, I, I, I'm married. I've got two daughters, two sons. Um, I'm not the most macho guy that you're ever going to meet, frankly, you know, and, Except and I when I hear that, you're on the golf course, when therefore it may be a different story, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, golf's not the most macho sport, right? It's not great iron, let's be honest. So, uh, so you know, I think um, we're in it together, right? The, the, the important thing is, you know, equality of opportunity for the, gen for the genders, and, and, and that's what we're committed to deliver. You know, my immediate team is 60-40, is the team men, women. Uh, we're working on that. The team below is 60-40 women, men. Um, we have a lot of very smart, very talented um, female leaders in our business. And, you know, my passion is to create an environment where they can bring their best self to work every day and, and have wildly successful careers. So, uh, you know, I might be a man, but that's what I believe. And that's what I'm, I'm, I'm trying yeah. to do. And I, you know, I, I, I think I've kind of squared that circle now, but it, but it was something that I, I struggled with a little bit in the beginning. And, and I think beyond the representation, which is important, having women uh, in leadership, but also I think the energy, as I said, even our male leaders and our women leaders need to embody both those energies, right? The caring, compassion, loving, the, 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 uh, you know, the uh, structure and uh, uh, numbers and all of those simultaneously so it's not you know you can have a situation where you you have a lot of women leading but they're leading only with masculine energy and there's no care and there's no compassion and there's no empathy and inclusiveness in that culture right and that's yeah. what we've seen in the past as well uh, given that those women came up under those systems and that's the only way you could succeed i remember when i was growing up in india our prime minister was indira gandhi Right, and but she was called the only man in her cabinet, <laughs> even though she was the only woman in her cabinet, right? And of course, you had Margaret Thatcher in England, the Iron Lady. So, so I think we're evolving away from that. As long as we're bringing both those energies into the uh, into the work culture, I think that's really ultimately what we need: wholeness, right? 
I couldn't agree more. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And it's, why do we have to conform to stereotypes? You know, wh why is it that women are the only ones who can be empathetic and men have got to be I, thrusting and aggressive? I mean, you know, we're, 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 we're much more complex yeah. uh, people than that. And, um, you know, pe people have commented, I mean, obviously not Timothy, people have commented that empathy is one of my strongest suits. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I'm deeply invested in the success of my people and, and yeah. how I help them find their strengths to win. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that's a great, a great observation. I'm fully aligned. David, I like the Martin Luther King phrase, we must be tough-minded and tender-hearted yeah. at the same time, regardless if you're a man or a woman. Right? So I love that, that approach, David. And, and I think what's interesting is, I don't know if you can comment a little bit about the leadership program that you've been developing at the Body Shop in terms of what are some of the key things that when you sat down and said, okay, we're going to, we're going to develop this leadership development program to get at our frontline people and eventually to bring throughout the firm. And, um, and I think that's a real, we'll come back to that. That's a really important culture change. Was, uh, but you had in mind a certain leadership model that you helped co-develop with, with the people that delivered it. Say a little bit about what was on your mind when you look at that leadership model, what was important to you in that? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, not, nothing. I don't think that's that's particularly revo revolutionary. But the thing that struck me is is you know that that I've learned over many years of doing this kind of stuff is how much people let fixed beliefs get in the way. You know, how do they get get themselves in the way of solving problems and being their best self? And I think you know my my challenge to the organization is how do we free people's thinking a little bit? You know, how, how do we challenge the role of thought on this? to positively reframe the situations that people find themselves in and how do they get it, develop an understanding of, you know, their best authentic self mm. and creating an environment that allows them to be in that place more of the time, you know, that, 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 that's when really beautiful work um, mm. starts to happen. So, so, so everything we did around the design of the program was, was around that, that concept of, you know, unlocking your blocking thinking as it were, uh, understanding you you at your best and then helping you create frameworks to be there more of the time. I mean, that, that was the, the, the underlying principles behind the work that we did. You've also mentioned the whole idea of being an activist brand because traditionally the body shop has been an activist brand. And how do you start to, to reinvent that in, 20, in the 2020s? What does it mean to be an activist brand and what do you, you know, so say a little bit about that, about what, what, how you make that relevant now in today's world. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the thing, it's one of the biggest things that's been exercising us over, over the last three years. You know, there was a, there was a very particular model that Anita was, was the master at of um, being noisy, being out there with a placard, marching, um, getting in people's faces, um, being an irritant. And she did it very well. And, you know, and she, she had some incredibly effective campaigns. And I think there was a period of time she was amongst the most famous women in the world, frankly, because of, you know, the, um, you know, the, the profile she created for herself as an agent of positive change in the world. I think we're in different times, right? It's, you know, there is still the marching going on, but, but things are so much more complicated with social media um, you know, you, you, you know, in, in our cancel culture, you know, you say the wrong thing and suddenly nothing that you ever say for the rest of your life will be relevant again. 
you know, so there's, there's this, this difficulty, I think, you know, particularly in an organization that's lost confidence about preparedness to put your head above the parapet and say what you care about, particularly if it's slightly controversial. Um, and so we, we've had to do a lot of work about, okay, if there is an innate lack of confidence around that, how do we create frameworks and structures that allow people to be able to do it in a way that we get collective buy-in, we don't do stupid things. Um, you know, when we put things out there, we're very clear why we're doing it and an understanding that there will be consequences because not everybody's going to like what it is that we've got to say. And the, the feedback is the feedback mechanism for that is so much more immediate in 2021 mm -hmm. than it was in, let's say 1985. Right. So, uh, so we're, we're, we're taking, we're taking baby steps in, in, in that area. You know, we, 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 you know, one of the things that we think is incredibly important is that there is a, you know, there is a world of incredibly motivated, um, talented young female activists who want positive change to happen. And the thing that we're really working hardest at is understanding how we support them. Mm. You know, they're empowering themselves. They, they don't need us to empower them. You know, they're self-empowered. But, but how do we provide support and help amplify their voice? And, you know, we're looking, at, we're looking at areas like the lack of female representation in politics around the world, and we think that's a big problem. Uh, you know, the young women's voices. I mean, of course, there's AOC, but everybody talks about AOC because she's the exception, right? Mm. So, so how do we create more people like her around the world and how do we support that? And that's, that's giving us, um, you know, much pause for thought right now. Well, David, you know, I always like to uh, find out where people are coming from and what shaped them and what made you the kind of human and the kind of leader you are, a conscious leader, a caring leader. Uh, what can you share about your upbringing, your parents, your mom? Uh, what, uh, what were the formative influences that brought you down this path and not sort of the cutthroat capitalist path? Yeah, you, you know, I... Um... I came from, you know, family five is myself and my, my two sisters, uh, my mom and dad were, you know, they had an equal partnership. They both worked, you know, they were both involved in taking care of us. Uh, my, my dad was a middle manager. He's, I mean, he's still around, but he was a middle manager. He's 90 now. And, uh, in a, in a company, my mother was a nurse. Uh, you know, my mm -hmm. mother was all about nurturing, you know, it was always yeah. about healing making people well, you know, and, 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 and that, that's always been, I mean, even now, you know, at 85, 86 years old, she's, she's the one who'll be running around to a next door neighbor, making sure they've, you know, taking care of themselves after an operation or getting fed or whatever. So I grew up in that, in that environment. And I think it inevitably rubbed off. It was a, you know, very warm, loving environment. There was no expectations of me. It was, you know, I was a fairly bright kid. You know, I went to grammar school. I was in the top group and, at the top of the top group. And there was just, but there was no expectation I was going to go on and work for a magic circle legal firm or something like that. You know, it was just David's a bright kid and he'll find, he'll find his place. So I never had that sort of strong sense of I've got to get somewhere. I just felt loved. Um, and I felt I had permission to go and find what it was that I was meant to do. And, um, mm. and I ended up here. Wow. Well, you were quite blessed. I mean, that's, that's a wonderful childhood. I'm writing my memoir right now, you know, and that wasn't the same story, you know, <laughs> by any means. But I, but I do find that children of nurses and teachers 
especially if their mom was a nurse or a teacher. I mean, that, that really shapes people in a, in a very significant way. And it's really about is bringing that, uh, that mother energy, that kind of energy into the workplace where it's so sorely lacking, right? Mm. We, have a, we have a surplus of the other energy uh, out there in the world, in politics and in business. But this is the energy that, uh, that I think more from your mother than your father, you know, that you brought into the world. Yeah. I, I, and, you know, it's interesting. I, I've been very fortunate that I've worked with some extraordinary, extraordinarily successful entrepreneurs, you know, a, n- a number of billionaires, you know, at, at, at first hand. And, and it's interesting, you know, when they, when they, I've got to know them well and they've opened up about their personal stories, how many of them lost parents at an early age. And there was something yeah. that, that meant they had to go and prove something or achieve something. It was, you know, it's interesting. And I, you know, there, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't have changed my upbringing for, for, um, for anything, but it's sort of interesting that, that I, I never felt I had, I had to go out and achieve. I just had to be myself. And it's been interesting to contrast that with some of the biggest <laughs> achievers on the planet that I happen to have worked with. Yeah, yeah, that is fascinating. Uh, mm-hmm. So David, you know, w- what's catching your attention these days? What, 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 is, what, is inter- what are you reading? What are you following that's sort of exciting to you as you look forward? Let's take a pause on that one. <laughs> um, what have I been reading recently? Yeah. Or anything that's motivated you, that's gotten you excited, that you're sort of going, oh, that was something really interesting. And- yeah, I'm just, I've been reading so much recently, and I, I just put that thing down about Russia that we were talking about. Um, because we're just about to go into the Russian market. I mean, honestly, Timothy, the biggest thing that's fascinating me right now is what happens when the worst of this is over. Mm. You know, that, that's the thing that's, you know, are, are we facing the roaring 20s? I mean, how are people really feeling? I mean, I know how I'm feeling. I'm feeling stir crazy, right? <laughs> I want to go out and see the world again and meet people and you know, and have lunches and dinners and connect and just be part of human society again. And I'm craving that so badly. Yeah. Um, and, and, and how is that going to show up? Is it going to be a repeat of 1920s? Is there going to be all of that madness? Or is it a, a different 21st century version of that? And I'm kind of fascinated at the moment to understand how this is going to play out. I mean, I, I guess we're going to live it pretty soon, so, <laughs> so we'll know. But um but yeah, I think I think that's the thing that's uh, that, that that's exercising my my thinking most right now. How about you guys? What 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 are you what are you reflecting on? I mean, to me, what's looming in this decade, once we come out of the pandemic, is the overhang of the whole climate change uh, issue, and this being called the decade of determination. This this decade will be determined, right? So we've got. Talk about a higher purpose. This decade has its higher purpose carved out for its, you know. And anybody who's not part of that, you know, I think would be looked very harshly and 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 uh, and judged for that, you know. So I I expect, and maybe it's wishful thinking, but I expect sort of an exponential increase in that consciousness and people sort of a race to the top in terms of doing more and doing better for the planet. Yeah, yeah. I, I I I'm. I'm like you, I, I'm incredibly optimistic. You know, we, you know, when I, one of the other things about the body shop when I joined was lots of hand wringing, lots of anxiety. You know, it's, it's awful. The ocean's full of plastic. True, it's a tragedy. Um, 
you know, the, the, the carbon levels are going to create seismic changes in, 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 in the environment that it will never be able to recover from. And it was, it was a real spirit of doom and gloom. But, but I believe in people. I believe that we're really smart and really resourceful. And when the chips are down, we're capable of remarkable things. And I think that I, I think the world's really woken up in the last. I mean, I, I feel a dramatic change, even in in the last couple of years. People have really woken up to the fact that this is a problem, and we collectively, as a race, have got to do something about it. I know there was a little blip in America for for a few years, <laughs> but maybe maybe it wasn't so top of the agenda. But um, but I'm I'm feeling an ever growing energy to tackle this, and I and I agree with you. I think I think you know. We can't take it for granted that it's going to happen, mm. but I think there's there's a, a, a really strong growing will to to make this world better, and uh, and and you've got to be part of that journey. And I and I agree with you. I think people will be judged incredibly harshly if 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 they're not. But for us, it's like breathing, right? We have to do this. It's in our purpose. It's in our DNA. So we we don't have a choice. I mean, we're just going to do it and uh, and and fly the flag and hope people will follow. Well, well, I, feel, I feel uh, I feel like we're entering the uh, third episode of Star Wars. You know, first was the Force Awakens, and that, that was you know that's when Anita and many others formed these businesses. Yeah. Then we have the Empire striking back. You know, the old guard sort of reasserting itself and clinging to their cherished good old days. And now we have the return of the Jedi. You know, and that's where we need to head. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Love I love that, that. David. Thank you so much for your time and attention today. It's been an inspiring story. The things you're doing at the Body Shop to make it, you know, really a relevant activist brand, living its purpose and being a very good business is truly, truly uh, exemplary. So thank you for your time and for sharing a little bit of your experience with that. Absolute pleasure, guys. R- really fun to spend the last hour with you. Thank you to our listeners. For those of you that are listening on whatever channel, podcast channel you're listening on, please do hit the subscribe button. And if you feel so moved, please go over to the Apple iTunes and leave us a review or leave us a comment. Always love to hear from you. And if there's any other comments you want to leave for us, you can go to theconsciouscapitalists.com. And there's a place there on the website where you can leave us a, a note. Want to know more about conscious capitalism? There's always the book that Raj and I co-authored, The Conscious Capitalism Field Guide. And Raj, if they wanted to know more about conscious capitalism, where could they do that? You can go to consciouscapitalism.org to learn about this global movement that is growing rapidly. Find out if there's a chapter close to where you live or get involved in, in a myriad of different ways. So do join this, uh, this community. Great. And David, last word from you in terms of wanting to know more about the Body Shop's purpose and some of the really good things you're doing. Where where can people go to find out more information about that? Well, of course, people can check out our website. And, you know, I, 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 I just love the dialogue on this subject. I'm so passionate about it. So I'd love it if people just reached out directly to me. And I'm, I'm very easy to connect with. Uh, on the internet. I think you just type in CEO of the Body Shop and my name pops up. So uh, if, if you want to extend the conversation and, and understand a little bit more about the journey we've been on, I'd love to uh, I'd love to connect. All right. Thank you all very much. And we'll see you all next week. Thank you.